recorded live. Hello, this is William Fank of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, January 3rd, 2014. Wow, I hope this year doesn't go as quickly as last one. Tomorrow, Christagenia.org, as an Internet entity anyway, will be five years old. I have some things I want to say in commemoration of that. Some people will surely think that I am only boasting. I already know who they are. I think I will only be stating certain facts for reason that the good people who care about our endeavors at Christagenia need to be informed of how we are doing from time to time. I will save that for the end of the program. Tonight we will commence with Acts chapter 25, the 31st segment in this series. Hopefully we'll get it done in 34. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. In Acts chapter 24, we saw that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years following his arrest in Jerusalem. The Roman procurator, Felix, was a man of noble Greek birth, being descended from a line of Arcadian kings, according to the Roman historian Tacitus, who was married to a Jewess, not even half his age, and he was a very corrupt man, according to three historical witnesses, the Roman historian Tacitus, the Judean historian Josephus, and Luke himself here in the book of Acts. Felix's corrupt ways eventually cost him his long-held post as the procurator of Judea, where he was succeeded by Porcius Festus. I poked fun at his name a couple of, a couple of segments ago, because it really does come from words which can mean jovial pig. This Festus was procurator until 62 AD when he died in office rather suddenly. I don't think that's ever a coincidence when it's in connection with Jews. Porcius Festus, being of the Roman gens Porcia, was actually descended from a notable family. He was related to Marcus Porcius Cato, a plebeian farmer born about 234 BC, who became the Roman statesman commonly known as Cato the Elder, and his great grandson Marcus Porcius, I'm sorry, Marcus Porcius Cato Eudicensis, who was born circa 95 BC and became the Roman statesman commonly known as Cato the Younger. Cato's younger son, Cato the Younger son, I'm sorry, also named Marcus Porcius Cato. He was a supporter and the brother-in-law of Brutus and a supporter of Brutus and Cassius and he was one of Caesar's assassins. There were other politicians in the family as well. Flavius Josephus mentions Festus several times in both his Antiquities and in Wars of the Judeans. However, he had no ill report concerning him. Josephus did write rather negatively about his successor, Albinus, 
where he compared him to Festus in Book 2 of Wars of the Judeans, where he said, and I quote, Now it was that Festus succeeded Felix as procurator and made it his business to correct those who made disturbances in the country. So he caught the greatest part of the robbers and killed a great many of them. But then Albinus, who succeeded Festus, did not execute his office as the other had done, nor was there any sort of wickedness that could be named, but he had a hand in it. So we see that Josephus had some regard for Festus, where he had none at all for either Felix, his predecessor, or Albinus, his successor. And one was evidently as corrupt as the other. As we have seen many times in other biblical contexts, Yahweh our God arranges for bad rulers in order to punish a sinful people. Paul, however, had to go to Rome, and Festus would help to fulfill that destiny. Surely the Judeans would rather have slain him in Jerusalem. Except for the resolution of a dispute between Herod Agrippa II and the high priest at Jerusalem, where Festus decided in favor of the priests, and the continuing decay of Judean-Roman relations, which ended in the general rebellion that would lead to the destruction of Jerusalem a few years afterwards, there seems to be little else worthy of note in Festus's term as procurator, besides his having sent Paul of Tarsus to Rome. We'll see that in Acts chapter 27. Upon the death of Festus, the murder of James was executed by certain of the Sadducees. And, and that, mentioning that gives me the opportunity to discuss some of the accusations of the, Saul, of the Paul bashers. In the pages of Josephus's Antiquities, there's a man named Saul who is one of the thugs employed by the Sadducees around the time of the murder of James. But Saul was a quite common name in Judea at the time, just like Joshua or Jesus was also a common name in Judea. And there were many pages named, many people named. Jesus or Yahshua in the pages of Josephus and even in the genealogy of Christ. That doesn't mean that they're all the same Yahshua. The historical attestation of both the Acts of the Apostles and Flavius Josephus clearly puts the death of James as many as two years after the sending of Paul to Rome. There's no way that Paul could be connected to that, and that shows you what poor scholars the Paul bashers are. I've seen many of them repeat that fable based on the connection of a common first name, which happens to be 
a very popular name. It was actually the name of the first king of Israel after Yahweh, Saul of Benjamin, Saul the son of Kis. With this, we will proceed with Acts chapter 25. So Festus, having stepped into the government, after three days he went up into Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the high priests and the leaders of the Judeans appeared to him against Paul and exhorted him, requesting a favor by him that he would summon him to Jerusalem, making an ambush to kill him on the road. So we see once again that the Sadducees, and these high priests are Sadducees, and most of these leaders, they, they have no regard for the rule of law whatsoever. That Greek word, eparchia, is, is rendered somewhat idiomatically as province in the King James Version. The Festus stepped into the province. The word actually means the government of a province. That's the reason for our differences here. In Acts chapter 24, we see that Paul defended himself before Felix and against the charges of the Judeans only five days from his arrival in Caesarea. With that, Felix seems to have looked for excuses in order to defer judgment, and that resulted in Paul's having been left bound for two years. Luke does not give us any further details. However, it is evident that the pressure which the Judeans had put upon Festus, which is described here, must have also been put upon Felix in order to have Paul return to Jerusalem. Luke relates that during those two years, Felix had only hoped for a bribe from Paul in order to be released. As Josephus described, and which we presented here while presenting Acts chapter 24, Felix had many of the Judeans of Caesarea slain when their dispute with the Greeks related to local politics in Caesarea caused them to take up arms. Ostensibly, the deterioration in the relationship between Felix and the Judeans may well have been a chief factor in delaying any decision concerning Paul of Tarsus. But whether Felix refused to return Paul to Jerusalem for better or for worse is immaterial. The hand of God is manifest in that from Acts chapter 19, it is evident that Paul knew that he had a destiny to preach the gospel in Rome. So he was fearless in Jerusalem. He did not fear dying there, knowing that he was destined to go to Rome. In Acts chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, which record the events related to Paul's arrest two years prior to this time, this is stated explicitly, and I'll quote, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him 
into the castle. I'm quoting the King James Version here. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. With this, we have verse 4 of chapter 25. So then, Festus replied to keep Paul in Caesarea and himself to be about to go out shortly, meaning to return from Jerusalem to Caesarea. Therefore, those among you, he said, who are able to come down together, if there is anything out of place with the man, must bring an accusation against him. The majority text has only if there is anything with this man. The King James Version did not follow it here. The King James takes the word atopus, which is literally out of place, and translates it as wickedness. Paul, being a Roman citizen and born in Calicia, could not lawfully be forced to stand trial in Jerusalem. They had no jurisdiction over him. And therefore, it is evident that Festus may have already known something about Paul and his circumstances, although Luke has not related anything explicitly. Verse 6, And spending among them not more than eight or ten days, going down into Caesarea, the next day sitting upon the judgment seat, he ordered Paul to be brought. There's some dispute amongst the majority text and, and Codex Laudianus and other manuscripts concerning that length of time. It's not really material. Throughout the pages of Josephus, Tacitus, and other contemporary historians, it is evident that in Rome and in the provinces, when the government changed hands, the cases of those who stood accused were reviewed, and often charges against individuals were simply dropped. There's an example of this in the life of Pontius Pilate, who had been accused of the murder of certain Samaritans and who had himself been recalled to Rome to face those accusations, and Josephus records this. However, before he arrived there, the emperor, Tiberius, had died, and therefore Pilate never faced the charges. They were simply forgotten. Caligula succeeded Tiberius. It is evident that Paul, being bound when Festus came to office, his case would have had to be reviewed. While there must have been other matters for which Festus went to Jerusalem, this certainly would have been on the agenda of things for Festus to investigate. Verse 7, And upon his arriving, meaning his return to Caesarea, there stood about him the Judeans who came down from Jerusalem, bringing down many and severe charges, which they were not able to prove. Upon Paul's answering in defense that neither against 
the law of the Judeans, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I done anything wrong. But Festus, wishing to bestow a favor upon the Judeans, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over that word for some reason, upon the Judeans, replying to Paul, said, Do you wish, going up to Jerusalem, to be judged there by me concerning these things? So we see Festus had just come to the government of the province, and he's playing sycophant to the Jews. There is no reason whatsoever for Paul to be offered a trial in Jerusalem except that Festus had some reason or another desired to satisfy the Judeans. Lawfully, Paul could only be sent to Jerusalem for a trial if he indeed consented to it, and he had absolutely no reason to to do so. The Judeans not being able to prove their case, Paul should have been released. Of course, if he had been released, the Judeans would have sought to kill him unlawfully. As Luke informs us at the opening of this account that they really sought for him to be sent to Jerusalem so that they could ambush him on the road. Something they had before planned on doing when Paul was first arrested. They had no regard at all for the rule of law. Evidently, they would not have objected to killing his Roman guards as well. That would have been necessitated, the guards being committed to protecting him and delivering him to the assigned destination. Verse 10. And Paul said, by the judgment seat of Caesar, I am standing where it is proper, and that word could be translated as necessary, where it is proper for me to be judged. I have done nothing wrong to the Judeans, as even you well recognize. So then, if I am a wrongdoer, and have done anything worthy of death, I do not ask to be excused from dying. But if there is nothing of these things which they accuse me, no one is able to gratify them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, conversing with the council, meaning the Sadducees, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, To Caesar you shall go. Paul was born to a Judean family which resided in Tarsus, in Cilicia, by which he was a Roman citizen. Here he is asserting the privileges he had as a Roman citizen. His citizenship gave him an advantage that Judeans born in Judea did not have. And only by that could he make the claim that it was a necessity for him to be judged by Caesar and not by the Judeans. If Paul were not a Roman citizen, 
he would not have had such a recourse. Christ, being born in Judea, was not a Roman citizen. Judeans were not granted Roman citizenship, and therefore he had no such recourse, even if he wanted it. And so Pilate had no choice but to take the course which he relented to, turning him over to the Judean. I can't say that word tonight. I'm sorry. Turning him over to the Judeans, right? Testus, if he indeed cared about Roman law, he couldn't do so with Paul. He couldn't just turn him over to them, and he didn't. He must have cared about Roman law. Knowing that the word of God had destined the Christ to die outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and that Paul was destined to announce that very thing in Rome, we see the hand of God is manifest in the formation of the laws of men and in the lives of both Christ, of course, and of Paul, since no other choice was possible in either case. Festus should have released Paul, since the Judeans could not prove their case. That, of course, would have angered the Judeans against him as soon as he had become the administrator of their province. When Paul was not released, he had little choice but to appeal to Caesar. Festus must have been pleased that he did, since therefore the Judeans could not harbor a just grievance towards him for not surrendering Paul to them. It was the perfect excuse for Festus to let him off the hook here. And since Paul's fate being taken out of his hands, he would then be relieved of any resulting injustice. So this is, this is a win-win situation for Festus. Verse 13, and some days passing, Agrippus, the king, and Bernica arrived in Caesarea, greeting Festus. And as they spent many days there, Festus referred to the king the things about Paul, saying, there is a certain man left behind by Felix in bonds, concerning whom, upon my coming into Jerusalem, the high priests and the elders of the Judeans appeared requesting a judgment against him, to whom I replied that it is not a custom with the Romans to give any man freely before when he being accused would have the accusers face to face and would receive opportunity for a defense concerning the charges. As we had, had, had explained while presenting Acts chapter 23, the Judeans pretended to the law, but were consistently portrayed by Luke as having had a complete disregard for either the laws of man or of God. 
They were also often portrayed in that manner by Josephus, even when Josephus really wasn't admitting it. Yet Paul, writing his epistle to the Romans, even before his arrest in Judea, had already commended them for their society, which was based upon the rule of law. We pointed this out. It's in Romans chapter 2. Luke's testimony here informs us that Festus professed a regard for the laws of his nation. And by that, Paul was able to go to Rome, even if it was only to face Nero, the madman. And he was. By the time Paul got there, he certainly was. Agrippa's here. Is Herod Agrippa II. He was the son of Herod Agrippa I, the Herod who was described as having been eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12. And he was the nephew of Herod of Chalkis, which was at that time a kingdom in Syria just north of Judea. He was the grandnephew of Herod Antipas, who was called Herod the Tetrarch in the Gospels. This Herod Agrippa II was initially given the kingdom of his uncle upon his uncle's death, but Claudius, the emperor, later took it away and made him governor of the Tetrarchy of Herod Philip I and Lysanias. Now Herod Philip I was the brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch had taken Herod Philip one's wife, which was the act for which John the Baptist had admonished him. The family of Herod is really, really confusing. <clears throat> Nero later restored Herod Agrippa II to rule over most of the lands that were once ruled by his father and his uncle, making him a king over them. Herod Agrippa II was also granted the supervision of the temple in Jerusalem, even though Judea was not his jurisdiction. And with that, he had the right to appoint the high priest. Flavius Josephus describes his frequent exercise of that authority, and during his rule, the occupant of the office of high priest was changed very often, and usually for political purposes. Of course, Herod had no authority over the Roman procurator of Judea, and therefore Herod had no jurisdiction over Paul. As we explained at length, discussing Acts chapter 24, Herod Agrippa II was the brother of Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix, the former procurator. At this very time in this narrative of Acts, Felix and Drusilla are en route to Rome so that Felix could face charges. This Bernice, or Bernica, is also one of his sisters. And Josephus repeats the alleged rumor that her and her brother Herod Agrippa had an incestuous relationship 
for many years. Josephus mentions Agrippa and Bernice together in several places, right up to the, um, the outbreak of the rebellion in Judea in Wars Book 2, Chapter 17, where he relates that at the outbreak of that rebellion, rebels had burned down their palaces. Josephus reports the rumor of the illicit relationship between Agrippa II and Bernica, or Bernice, if you believe the King James translation rendering. However, it is not clear that he accepts it. And he seems to allow Bernica's own denial to stand where he describes it from Antiquities Book 20, and I quote, But as for Bernica, she lived a widow a long while after the death of Herod, meaning Herod the king of Chalcis, who was both her husband and her uncle. That's why the family of Herod is so confusing. But when the report went that she had sexual intercourse with her brother, meaning this Herod Agrippa II, who we see here in Acts, she persuaded Polemon, who was the king of Colicia, to be circumcised and to marry her, as supposing that by this means she should prove those calumnies upon her to be false. And Polemon was prevailed upon, and that chiefly on account of her riches. Yet did not this matrimony endure long, but Bernica left Polemon, and, as was said, with impure intentions. So he forsook at once this matrimony and the Judean religion. This marriage, the Polemantu, who was the king of Pontus, Colchis, and Colicia, took place around 50 AD, about nine years before this time, and had already long failed by this time. Agrippa and Bernica had, of course, supported the Romans at the outbreak of the rebellion in Judea. I'm almost afraid to try to say that word. And they both survived the war, after which they are reported as having gone to Rome. However, what later became of either of them is unclear. I think I'm just being overconscious about my enunciation. In Acts chapter 23, verse 35, we see that Felix had commanded that Paul be kept in Herod's judgment hall, as the King James Version has it, where the Christogenia New Testament has the quarters of Herodas. That's a reference to this Herod Agrippa too. And therefore, it is evident that he kept a residence in Caesarea, which was outside of his own kingdom, yet being charged with the supervision of the temple and having close ties to Judea, it seems expedient for him to have done so, since Caesarea was the provincial capital. So here we see, here in Acts 25, verses 13 and 14, that Herod 
and Bernica spent a considerable amount of time here in Caesarea, for which they conveniently had their own residence. Now to return to Festus's address to Agrippa, verse 17. Therefore, upon their coming here, meaning Paul's accusers from Jerusalem, and not making any delay, the next day, sitting upon the judgment seat, I ordered the man to be brought, concerning whom the accusers standing brought not any charge of which I suspected evil, but they had certain disputes with him concerning their own religion. That word religion, dice daimon, that, that's the same word that Paul uses in a negative sense in Acts chapter 17 in his address to the Athenians where it's rendered as superstition. But they had certain disputes with him concerning their own religion and concerning a certain Yahshua, or Jesus, who is dead, whom Paul asserts is living. And I, meaning Festus, and I, being perplexed concerning the dispute of these things, said that if he wished to go into Jerusalem and there to be judged concerning these things. But upon Paul's appealing for him to be kept for a decision by Sebastus, I ordered him to be kept until when I shall send him up to Caesar. And that word, Sebastus, is the Greek equivalent of the Latin term Augustus. And while Augustus was originally adopted as a title by Octavian, who is now popularly known as Caesar Augustus, here it is a title of respect and a title adopted by Nero. Where we see the phrase Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, the Greek for Augustus is actually Augustus. It's a, actually a transliteration of the Latin term and not the synonymous Greek word Sebastus, which we see here. For whatever reason, Luke used the Latin term in Luke 2. He used the Greek synonym here. The New College Latin and English Dictionary by John C. Troutman says that Augustus that it was an honorary cognomen of Octavius Caesar after 27 BC and of subsequent emperors. The word Sebastus in Greek and August in Latin mean sacred, reverenced, or venerable. Strictly speaking, and of course, Luke used the term because it was a, a matter of fact that he was referenced in that manner. But strictly speaking, Christians should see the term as impious, being a facet of the pagan Roman cult of the emperors and a method of unduly promoting men to objects of veneration. Verse 22. Then Agrippus to Festus, I have wished also to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, meaning Festus, 
You shall hear him. The language is a little terse in Luke. Festus is only giving Herod Agrippa II the opportunity to hear what Paul had to say. And Paul was happily compliant. A lot of people would wonder why. Of course, Christ himself would not even speak to or acknowledge this Herod Agrippa II's Edomite great-uncle, Herod the Tetrarch. However, the mission of Paul was quite different than the mission of Christ, and Paul did comply. Herod Agrippa II was an Edomite, and Paul must have been fully cognizant of that fact. Paul himself had already written about the Edomite presence amongst the leaders of Judea in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which was written at least nine years before this time. And Paul had already written about the general Edomite population amongst the people of Judea, there I go again, when he was writing his epistle to the Romans nearly three years before this time. Ostensibly, Paul was happy to speak about Christ before Herod for the sake of all those who would then be given the opportunity to hear the gospel, but not on account of Herod himself. The Bible always focuses, the narrative always focuses on the central figure. We have to think of the big picture and what else is going on here. The evidence first, <clears throat> the evidence of Paul's own philosophy in this very regard is manifest in the first chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, which was written from Rome sometime after this event here at Acts. And in one Philipp I'm sorry, in Philippians 1.12, Paul says, Now I wish you to know, brethren, that those things concerning me have gone still more to the advancement of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ have become manifest to the whole prahitorium. The prahitorium is a reference to the court of Nero, the emperor's residence and court in Rome. To the whole prahitorium and to all the rest, Paul is writing this epistle to the Philippians after he had already made a defense of Christianity before Nero. And most of the brethren among the number of the prince, trusting in my bonds, venture more exceedingly to speak the word of Yahweh fearlessly. Some indeed, even because of envy and strife, but some also by approval are proclaiming the Christ. In other words, those who are denouncing Christ, they're showing their fruits, but at least they're proclaiming Christ by denouncing him. Surely, these out of love, knowing that I am set for defense of the good message or the gospel, but those out of contention are declaring the Christ, not purely supposing to stir up tribulation in my bonds. What then, that in every way, 
whether in pretext or in truth, Christ is declared, and in this I rejoice. And surely I will rejoice, for I know that this, for me, will result in preservation, not necessarily preservation in this life, through your supplication and the additional fortune of the Spirit of Yahshua Christ, in accordance with my eager expectation and hope, seeing that in nothing shall I be ashamed. But with all free spokenness, as always, even now, Christ shall be exalted in my body. In other words, he is exalting Christ through his death. He goes on to say, whether by life or by death, he's going to glorify Christ, whether he lives or he dies. Paul, therefore, must have also seen this occasion before Herod Agrippa as yet one more opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ in spite of Herod and all of the Edomites amongst the Judeans. And on account, not, I'm sorry, and not on account of them. At the end of that same first chapter in his epistle to the Philippians, Paul tells us that the Christian lack of fear before the enemies of God is for them a sign of their certain destruction. Where he tells them, from verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing be terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a token, an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. In other words, of his trials which he was having, professing the gospel at Rome. As he spoke here before Agrippa, Agrippa, he would later speak before Nero. Verse 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernica, coming with much fanfare and entering into the auditorium with the commanders and eminent men of the city, that upon Festus's order, Paul was brought forth. Look at the picture. Caesarea was no small town. It had been the provincial capital of Judea since 6 AD, and it was also a port city. As we see here in Acts, 
that it was a frequent stopping place and the port of call for Paul's own journeys to and from Anatolia. We see that in Acts chapters 9, 18, and 21. While we are not informed whether many witnesses were present to observe Paul's trials before either Felix or Festus, we can safely imagine gatherings comparable to the provincial courts in the other provinces, which must have been considerable. Here, Luke draws a picture which allows us to imagine that many hundreds, if not thousands of people must have been present to see this spectacle. We have all the chief and eminent men of the city gathered. This is the governor, Festus, of a well-populated province, and it was at the time, and the king of a well-populated and neighboring region to the north. And he was actually a pretty popular guy, Herod Agrippa II. The population of the town alone had been, has been estimated at over 125,000, covering an urban area of nearly four square kilometers. It was no mean city. There was a considerable crowd here to watch Paul before Agrippa. Paul certainly, and we should keep that in mind, reading Acts chapter 26, Paul certainly spoke for the benefit of all of the true Israelites who observed this, and not only for the Edomite bastards. He definitely wasn't speaking for their benefit. He knew who they were. He knew what they were. And his epistles demonstrate that. Verse 24. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all those men who are here with us, see him concerning whom all the multitude of the Judeans entreated me both in Jerusalem and here, crying out that it is no longer fitting for him to live. Of course, Paul had the Antichrist Edomites against him, of which were comprised the majority of the leaders and probably all of the high priests and the party of the Sadducees, when I say high priests, of course, I mean the current high priests and all the former high priests who still bore the title. But he also had many of the true Israelite Christians incensed against him, as we have seen in Acts chapter 21, that there were many myriads amongst the Judeans who are believing, and all of them were zealous of the law. So Paul was hated on both sides. 
Christ, Christian, and Antichrist at this time. Verse 25. But I comprehended him to have done nothing worthy of death, yet he himself, having appealed to Sebastus, I had decided to send him, continuing the words of Festus to Agrippa. It is evident that Festus would not let him go. Festus would not release Paul, even though he should have. Yet he portrayed the appeal by Paul to Caesar as being the reason why he now must hold him and send him to Caesar. And he would use this appeal, Paul's appeal, as an excuse as to why he could not release him. We'll see that also in Acts chapter 27. In truth, even after appealing to Caesar, Festus may well have released Paul if he desired to do so. He did not want to displease the Edomite Jews. Verse 26, concerning which I do not have anything certain to write with authority, and we'll talk about that phrase at length momentarily, on which account I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, that upon there being an examination, I would have something that I may write. For it seems to me irrational, sending a prisoner and not indicating the charges against him. So Festus basically here admits that he's holding Paul, being a sycophant to the Jews, he's holding Paul, and there are no charges that he could quantify. There's no reason to be holding Paul. Now the Greek phrase, tokurio, is with authority here, in the Christodelian New Testament, where the King James Version has the phrase, to my Lord. The pronoun, my, is not found in any of the manuscripts. The phrase is the dative case of the adjective, curious, along with the definite article. It must be asked, why would Festus use a phrase such as, to my Lord, in reference to Agrippa, who was certainly not his Lord, or in reference to Caesar, who was the master of both men and ruler of all. The word curios is an adjective where it appears along with a definite article. It is commonly a substantive, which is a word or phrase from another part of speech that is used as a noun. This is how curios is used in the Bible nearly everywhere that it appears as a title for either God or man. However, two other uses of curios were altogether ignored by the translators of the King James Version and many who have followed after them. First, that the word is only a simple adjective in Greek, and then, while it is used as a title when, when it appears as a substantive, neither is the substantive limited to use as a title. Curios means a person's having power or authority over, to be a lord or master over. It can also mean authoritative, decisive, dominant, 
It could mean authorized, ratified, or valid, talking about a document, talking about a law or a commandment, or even talking about times. It could mean fixed, ordained, appointed. It could mean legitimate, regular, or proper. This word curios appears often in the, the Christogenian New Testament as with authority or by authority, Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 17, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 6. The, the complete list with verse numbers will be in the notes to this program. <laughs> it's of authority in Ephesians 6, 4. It's as appropriate with the preposition para in Ephesians 6, 8 and in 2 Timothy 1, 18. We shouldn't interpret it to be a reference to God every time we come across the word. That's basically how the King James did it. Here it's absurd to render it as under my Lord, unto my Lord, because there's no my in any of the manuscripts. And because Festus never planned to write Agrippa of the matter. Rather, Festus had to write Caesar of the matter. Paul appealed to Caesar. Paul would be sent to Caesar. When the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, had sent Paul as a prisoner to the procurator Festus, he sent along a letter explaining why he had done so, explaining why Paul was in bond. Now Paul is forced to appeal to Caesar, and Festus must write something authoritative explaining to Nero why Paul had been sent as a prisoner to him. Festus did not really know why the Judeans wanted to execute Paul, because he only saw a religious dispute peculiar to them. Paul, being a Roman citizen, could not be executed unless he committed an offense worthy of execution under Roman law. Here appears Herod Agrippa II, a man of authority, and a man who was informed of all of the disputes, the religious disputes amongst the Judeans, whom Festus must have perceived as someone who should have been able to help him explain exactly why Paul was being kept bound so that he could formulate charges that could be sent to Paul, I'm sorry, sent along with Paul to the emperor, Nero. For these reasons, Festus needed Agrippa to hear Paul and to hear those accusing Paul just as much as Agrippa desired to hear Paul. So that's why Festus wanted Agrippa to hear. Festus was, Festus was eager to hear the case before Agrippa so that perhaps Agrippa could have him write something authoritative or something with authority explaining to Caesar why he was sent, why Paul was being sent to Rome. Festus really didn't know, but he knew he couldn't let him go 
if he cared about his own political career. That concludes my presentation of Acts chapter 25. Paul's defense of Christianity before Agrippa is represented in Acts chapter 26. Yahweh willing, we will be here with that next week. I want to talk for a few minutes about the state of Christiania. First, I would like to thank all of those good brothers and sisters who have supported our endeavors financially. For without them, we would not be able to continue. Just a fact of life. I am grateful to you all. For you, I thank and praise Yahweh our God daily. The domain. Christaginia.org is five years old tomorrow, January 4th. Of course, my first website was rather simple, and the site that people see now was not fully developed until the end of that first year. In 2009, that first year, if I remember correctly, the original site had about 19,000 visits that year. The globe at the bottom of the main site now says that Christogenia has had just over 430,000 visits since November 20th, 2009. That's when the site that you see now first appeared. However, that globe only counts unique visitors to the main site. The Minecom Project, the Saxon Messenger, Clifton Amaheiser's site, and, and other Christogenia websites have different globes and their own visitor counters. I could put all of my material and, and Clifton's on one website. That would be a huge website, and people may hate me for that. The numbers received from Google Analytics are much more accurate and reflect all of Christogenia excluding a few sites that I host for others that are not really part of Christogenia, but which are on subdomains. I don't count the Sacred Truth Ministry site or Sword Brethren's blog in with Christogenia statistics. They are not rolled up. I know that Google is the next evil empire, but they are going to collect the information on website traffic, whether or not I access it. So I do. According to Google, since January 15, 2010, Christogenia has had 839,000 visits. from 413,000 unique visitors who have viewed well over 3 million pages. Half of the 20 to 25,000 visitors each month, that's how many we get, are returning visitors. The other half are new visitors, and most of them <laughs> evidently never come back. They probably shouldn't come back. Every year, our visitor traffic goes up. It doesn't go up a lot the last two years, but it still goes up. 
it was 104,000 in 2010, 219,000 in 2011. That was the year of my demise, according to my foes in the Jewish quarter of Christian identity. In 2012, it was 247,000. In 2013, it was 268,000, or about 733 people a day. Alexa, Alexa Alexa.com is not perfect, but it is the biggest and most respected website ranking service in the industry. It is documented on the Christogenia Forum that in October of 2010, we broke the top 300,000 websites in the world. In December of that same year, we broke the top 100,000. We stayed there throughout most of 2011 in the top 100,000 websites before dropping out after a server crash and nearly four days offline. Nevertheless, we have stayed in this range consistently. for all of the last four years. Today, Christogenia is still in the top 150,000 websites in the world. And in the top 35,000 in the U.S. To put things into perspective, according to Internet industry statistics, there are over 650 million websites in the world, and over half of them are in the U.S. Most of the top 100,000 websites belong to big media, big commerce, social networking, porno peddlers, big news agencies. Most of them... are not one-man operations with minimal budgets. Some of them are. Mike Delaney does a good job. Since November of 2009, and these numbers are public on my website, anybody could sit and add them up. That's all I do. Over 2.1 million podcasts have been downloaded from Christogenia in four years. That does not include any of the recordings which we have posted from others, the Comparay and the Swift recordings on, on their websites, on, on the websites that I have set up for their material. It only includes downloads of Christogenia programs currently posted on the main site, 1.3 million. The programs we have done for the Mind Comp Project, 321,000. Copies of Christogenia programs posted at the Saxon Messenger site, about 122,000 downloads. 
And the 200 old programs from 2009 and 2010 that I had done with Eli James, if I have to mention him, from the Christagenia Archive website, that's where they're housed now, and they've had about 350,000 downloads. This does not include the number of times which our programs have been played on the website themselves, which would increase the figures even more dramatically. There's reasons why I don't count them. The number of podcast downloads each month has been rising steadily. The last six months of this year have seen an average of about seventy thousand downloads a month on average. Now you could look at my front page and say, well that program only has a couple of hundred and that program only has a couple of hundred. Well well much of my old materials, things I did last year, earlier this year, is still being downloaded in, in rather large numbers. I'm I'm shocked by it. I'm also pleased but even more so, I'm humbled by it. Knowing all of this, those of mine enemies who claim that my ministry bears no fruit, and they make that claim rather consistently, I laugh at those turkeys. For five years, my only goal has been to help push Christian identity, historical and theological proofs into the public discourse, while at the same time attempting to give Christian identity a firm academic foundation that does not sacrifice the truth of the scriptures for the sake of popularity, and that does not compromise the message of the gospel for the sake of not wanting to make anyone uncomfortable. I don't care who I make uncomfortable or unwanted. I am certainly not perfect. No man can be perfect. But I will keep working towards that goal so long as Yahweh our God allows me. Whether it is immediately successful or not, I don't care. The truth will eventually prevail is indeed the Christian hope. Not to despise any other Christian identity pastors. Many who have done a lot of excellent work. Nevertheless, no other Christian identity website has ever even come close to the success 
on the internet, which which Christogenia has enjoyed. When I started my website, a lot of people told me that it would never be read, that the search engines would ignore it, that it would be blacklisted, that nobody would ever see it. Well, it is blacklisted in some places. I know a few libraries that shut it out and things like that. But historically, 30% of our Internet traffic has come from search engines, with the balance split fairly evenly between direct access, people with bookmarks in their browsers, and referrals from other websites. While there are many categories in the search engines where I think that we could do better, neither have I had all the time it takes to optimize every web page for the satisfaction of Google or Bing. I can't complain about the search engines at all. 30% of our traffic, that's like 6,000 visits a month, some months 7,500. Christogenia has certainly not had that success due to me or my glowing personality. <laughs> I say that with my tongue in my cheek. It amazes me how many clowns pretending to be identity Christians despise me for that. The backbiters, the clowns, the trolls, the infiltrators all those who slander me personally, make personal attacks, who slander my work and who have attacked or criticized me, all those clowns have destructive agendas. And as far as I'm concerned, they can all go jump into the lake of fire. That's where they're headed. Their fruits certainly make evident their character. The new Christogenia website is nearly complete. I have about 150 documents or other items to bring over and a few minor technical details to work out. The only major task left is to create a chat room. I do all my own tech as well. The new site is Android friendly, free of dependence upon proprietary, proprietary technologies, and hopefully it's much better organized than the old site. I'm hoping for an increase in traffic which is commensurate with the technical improvements. I had originally thought the site would take six months to develop. Now it has been just over two months. I hope to complete it within the next few weeks, Yahweh willing. There's something else I have to say, and I have to say this because it, it confronts me a lot. I never really, really like to talk about money, to talk about the need for financing or any other related topics, it, it really irks me to do so. I rarely do it here. Those things are only rarely mentioned in any of my programs. I'd rather leave it out. Christogenia.org is healthy, and Yahweh willing, we will continue our work without worry for the next five years and well beyond that, if need be. But some things just need to be said at least once in a while. 
Despite popular notions, the Internet is not free. The Jews offer you AOL, Yahoo, YouTube, and Facebook. And while they are now supposedly all, for the most part, they are now profitable ventures, at least according to the reports that the Jewish media gives us. I, I don't believe them either. These ventures have, throughout their history, almost always been huge money-losing propositions. And the investment banks keep them afloat year after year. Likewise, Microsoft has Bing and the Microsoft Network, and they also lose all sorts of money on those endeavors, but they never give them up. They do all of that for a very good reason. Hotmail, Gmail, it's all free, right? If big banking keeps Jewish-controlled Internet afloat, Jewish-controlled big Internet, while Jewish-controlled big Internet offers its services to the public for free, then the public begins to believe that the Internet should be free. That makes it very difficult for opposition voices to get the support they need to compete with Jewish-controlled big Internet because the Internet is not really free. People think they can post what they want on Yahoo, YouTube, and Facebook, but when somebody truly opposes the agenda of world Jewry on those websites, their content disappears. Their accounts are canceled. And even when it doesn't, it is nevertheless very transient. You are not going to find a truly effective dissenting opinion which lasts very long in those venues, except for the few clowns who seem to be dissenters but are actually only controlled opposition. Despite what these companies want you to think, the Internet is not free. One minimally equipped server on the Internet costs about $120 a month on average. Christogenia, for various reasons related to our experience, has six such servers, a couple which cost a lot more than that. We have these in order to assure that we are not once again blindsided by the treachery of a web host like One in One, who two years ago canceled our accounts on the basis of a single letter from the ADL, or from the dishonesty of a web host like Volume Drive, who this past August ran out on their own rent and abandoned the servers that we leased from them. Because we have six servers, we were able to survive that with only minor inconvenience. Not only do we pay the cost of leasing these servers, but they also take a great deal of time to manage and to secure. They're always undergoing hacking attempts. All of this I do myself on top of the time spent producing these programs and the content that we make available. Now, all of that being said, I think I am about 
I think I'm going to schedule a call-in program at least once every other month. I'm, I'm, there were a lot of excellent people who called in two weeks ago when we did call-in programs for the whole weekend, and, and I certainly appreciate that. I, I don't know if it was sufficient. I, I mean, a lot of people had plaudits and kind words. That There was one troll, and, and a few people had good questions. I would like to be um, more in touch and more open with the people that listen to these programs and appreciate my work. Perhaps I will do a call-in program at least every other month and, and rotate them between the Friday night and the Saturday night slots. A lot of people, many of them clowns hoping for an opportunity to troll, have asked why I do not regularly take calls on these programs. First, I really do not like to interrupt my Bible study programs with any other topics, and I don't want to hear most other people's opinions. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just telling the truth. I believe that I know my scripture. I know it in a historical and, most importantly, a biblical context, and that it needs to be prevented, pre presented from that perspective in, in the matter of a commentary so that it can be displayed the extent of the firm footing which our Christian identity profession actually has. We are on solid ground. We have our house, once we shed all of the distractions, we have our house built on a foundation of bedrock. We need to present that without distraction. Secondly, yeah, you know, people forget or, or rather many newer listeners may not even know, that for over a year and a half, I did a weekly open forum program in which all commoners, all commoners were invited to participate. There was also at that time a twice-monthly Euro forum in the afternoons. And there were actually some good European brethren who participated in that. At the beginning, when I first started, there were some who ventured to debate their various agendas with me. Most of them went away quite dissatisfied. Others just wanted to create distractions in the first place. Of course, there were good brethren who participated, and quite often, for good purposes, for edification. Eventually, the open forum programs ran their course. They got to be stale and repetitive, and I felt that I had to shelve them. So I had been through all of that already, and sometimes it was good and helpful, and often it was not. Perhaps if I do an open forum program periodically, every other month or so, something good may come out of it, or perhaps only a few more clowns will expose themselves. There are many clowns posing as identity Christians who are closet universalists, or who cling to the justification of various rituals, or who are divisive pallbashers not truly understanding his ministry, or who entertain long-discredited ideas such as Gnosticism, 
or Arianism. Yes, we still have Gnostics and Arians, and they're in Christian identity. There are so many who, coming to identity, cannot shed their denominational baggage. So they are really just somewhat racially aware Baptists or Methodists or Catholics, call it Baptist identity, Methodist identity. The Baptist identists, they know who they are. They're in Alabama. There are ridiculous and absolutely unbiblical ideas, such as the Ephraim Scepter trash, or the idea that men should promote themselves as gods. That clown who thinks he has truth from God, he does that. Or the clowns that invent doomsday scenarios year after year and try to agitate everybody with them. We have to absolutely reject all of these turkeys who would want us to believe their private Bibles and ignore the Word of God. We should stop giving them any sort of credibility whatsoever if we are to be taken seriously. These people, they have to be ignored. They have to be shunned. These Ephraim Skepter idiots, this truth from God dirtbag, these people have to be rejected. When you go listen to their programs, you enable them, you empower them. If that's the pigsty that you want to wallow in, that's fine. But they're not Christian identity. They're not even Christian. They're just turkeys. Dress them up for Christmas dinner. They dress themselves up. Many of the people who promote all this trash are doing so only to purposely discredit us. We enable them when we accept the persons of these people. All of these things we should shed. We should stick to our core issues, and we shouldn't beat each other over the head about things we can't prove. The core issues... That Yahshua Christ is Yahweh our God come in the flesh. That's number one. Anybody who denies that is an antichrist. That the word of God has only come to the Adamic white race. That's number two. Anybody who tries to obfuscate that message is an interloper and an infiltrator, getting us to buy the lies of the Jews. Those two things we have to stand on without wavering. And all of these peripheral dingbats, they have to be, well, they have to be shoved off the edge and into the trash or the lake of fire where they belong. Things like dominion theology and the many unbiblical and harebrained ideas that have grown out of that. If we really love the truth, these things we should do, no matter how we are hated for it. That's my philosophy. This um, that this clown from Chicago that. I used to work with, well, well, that was a learning experience anyway. And he stood there um, and told Greg Howard three years ago that we had to have a, 
a softer message and to make it more appealing to the British Israel crowd, clowns, crowds, same thing, and to mainstream Christians. We should never accept ideas like that. We may as well throw our Bibles away and betray our God. That's what it is. It's a betrayal of our message. We're not going to be popular doing that. He didn't become more popular doing that. The clown's website isn't even in the top three or four million, maybe. He might get 200 visits a month where he's ranked. I know I have websites ranked right there with him. And they don't get that many visits, so... Diluting the message for the sake of popularity, that's a crime, and it's not going to win our brethren. Standing strictly by the scripture, that's what we have to do, because we seek to please God. Not man. That's all I had to say about that. Thank you for putting up with that. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren, Pragmatic Genesis, Part 12, a discussion of the sacrifice of Isaac and the lives of Jacob and Esau. Yahweh willing, I will be here next Saturday with Acts chapter 26. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.